Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of retail banking for Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit solutions for the cannabis industry, both for merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest has over 30 years of experience as a corporate finance professional, helping founders raise capital, grow the company, and then structure and exit. Seth has sold 22 companies, started 10, and raised over $1 billion for startups. He is the co-founder of a corporate strategy and finance advisory group focused on the global life science industry. Please welcome to today's show, Seth Yakutan. Welcome to today's show, Seth. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, congrats on an impressive resume of success over the years. Uh, before we jump into what you're currently doing at Kentan Associates, uh, I'd like to take a step back and, and talk a, a little bit about your earlier days in banking and corporate finance and how that laid the foundation to forming uh, Kentan Associates, if we can. Well, I started my career really as an analyst with a venture capital fund. I, I grew up in the household of a guy who lived in an orphanage and was a serial entrepreneur, and I got my first job when I was nine years old. And I don't think I've ever had less than two jobs. So he was someone who was doing transactions and making companies happen. And so I, I think the first business plan I was asked to read was when I was 13 years old. And <laughs> I raised money for a company when I was 23 years old. And I think I exited a company when I was 25 years old. So Impressive. part of that was inside of a fund. But from a very early age, I was really looking at doing transactions. So I guess you could say with me, it was kind of genetically encoded as opposed to something that I learned, chose, knew how to do. I was just, I saw it going on. I was like, this is what I want to do. So I was very fortunate. Through osmosis is always the best way to learn, right? Be around our parents, if you will, our mentors that we can really learn the trade. Doesn't always have to be a parent, but. I, I got lucky in that it was, mm -hmm. you know, it can be a mentor. I've had several mentors that have filled similar roles in my life, but back to your initial question, you know, I think what I, what I got in the first stage of that was really kind of understanding how you invest money in a company that's early, how you then drive that to milestone based outcomes to raise more money. And then how you either take it public, get someone to buy it, or shutter it. <laughs> so from the return analytics and investor motivation perspective, I think the first part of, of what I did for six, 10 years was really, you know, kind of focused on that. And I had a really good understanding of it. And I then went back to school and got my MBA. And after I got my MBA, I went to work inside of a fund that was owned by Union Bank, which is now a U.S. bank, that was basically a $5 billion private equity sponsor calling fund. So we invested that money in loans, mezzanine, paper, and private equity, effectively to fuel M&A finance. So in the second part of, of my world, I kind of figured out if you're taking something that has 
you know, a hundred million or a billion dollars in revenue and you're using that as a vehicle to roll things up, how you finance it, how you sell it, how you monetize it, how all those waterfalls play in, into one another, how you paper it, how you look at getting those returns. So it was a very good kind of 15 to you know, 17 year corporate finance education that I got. And I think it's allowed me to do a lot of things in the future. So that's great. And that led to obviously where you're at today at Catan Associates. It did. So I, I founded that company with my dad in 2001. Mm-hmm. That was really kind of exclusively at that point focused on helping life sciences companies, therapeutic drug development companies, diagnostic companies, device companies, research product companies. And we kind of exclusively stayed in that lane until about 2011 or 12, at which point I started to try to find things that I thought were going to be, quote, easier, unquote, than therapeutic drug development. And that got me into sports nutrition and wellness and eventually several, several years later into direct consumer marketing products and then cannabis. The company, you know, identifies an opportunity. Is it co-investing or is Catan usually the lead anchor investor on deals? Uh, And what's the screening process that you go through in terms of trying to identify these opportunities? To be honest, usually we're not investing. And if we are investing, we're a minority behind a lead. You know, usually in Catan, what, what we're doing is we're helping to facilitate processes to either generate investment capital or buy or sell the company on behalf of someone okay. or really kind of position it. So a traditional bankers for the most part. I guess that's, that's the way that's the way that you could characterize it. I don't know that anything that we do is necessarily traditional. Right. <laughs> I'm not Goldman Sachs, but that that's the way that we think about it. I mean, normally it's not just a single job. It's not like, hey, go retile the pool. It's we need to pull out the entire backyard, re-landscape it, and turn it into something completely different. So it's a bit more holistic. And it has to be usually for me at this point part of a, a longer term vision than just, hey, I need two million bucks to get to this point. Right. Like that doesn't that doesn't do anybody any good. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- for us, you know, I've I've found a way to get equity in companies by generally you know partnering with them or or figuring out a way to partner with investors to do the same thing. And usually, if I'm going to make an investment, it's following someone who's much 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 bigger than me to have some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And anything that I've just directly invested in on my own usually is a total disaster, quite honestly. (laughs) So I understand that to a degree. So let's talk about the landscape uh, environment, if you will, in banking, VC, and the private equity world today. Given the failures that we've seen earlier this year with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic earlier, how has those events impacted the ability not only to raise capital, but the whole investment banking um, environment, if you will, for smaller companies and startups? Well, I think irrespective, 
macro events, usually finding early stage capital is challenging. So even in your best environment, finding money for something which is pre-revenue or pre-commercialization or needing scale usually is challenging. Unless you are in an area which is hot or in vogue. Okay. So let's level set that question with what that is kind of a binding constraint. Uh, given where the world is, which is in, I think we could all, depending upon our geopolitical stances, agree it, it's in a weird place, right? No matter where you, you sit on your issues today. And given the failures of financial institutions, and given the difficulties that the two markets that I'm involved with, which you know, which anyone calls kind of nuanced or emerging in biotech and cannabis, it's usually difficult to raise money. In this environment, it's exceptionally difficult to raise money. So you're seeing the companies that have had the ability to raise money historically continue to do that. You're seeing the best companies probably raise money. And I think in both of those verticals, things which are early or are not to either the revenue generation stage or the profitability stage, it's going to be very challenging to get capital into. I'm hearing that across the board. How has this impacted your business? How has this environment impacted your business? Has it slowed down? Or are you seeing more companies you know, knocking on your door? Allegedly, Joe, people think that I have magic beans. Now I'm going to let you in on a secret. I have no magic beans. Okay. What I've found in the 30 years that I've been helping people is that when times are tough, my phone rings four to five times more than it does when money's just mulling out of the sky for everybody with a, a heartbeat. So in, in these markets, you know, I find that I'm often busier than in exuberant times because when it gets hard, you really need help and it's hard right now. So for me, it's, it's been pretty good. That's good for you. And unfortunately it's a challenging environment for many of these companies. Yes, we can see uh, with what's going on in the marketplace. Can you share with our listeners, I um, mean, you've been very successful throughout your career and just going over your you know, bio uh, with some of your successful exits, there are more than 22 companies that you sold uh, and you raised over a billion and started 10 companies as well. Can you just you know, share with our listeners some of the uh, more prominent ones that uh, stick out in your mind as memorable successes, if you will? Yeah, I think... There's probably two companies that I've been involved with over that period of time that are amazing successes. One is a company which is called Fit Life Brands, shameless plug, NASDAQ, ticker symbol is FTLF. I've been on the board of this company for eight years. Originally, there were two separate companies, one which was called Isatory, the other which was called Fit Life. I became a board member of Isatory in late 2015. It was pretty clear that Isatory was either going to need to raise money or merge in the beginning of 2000, I think 15 or 16, I can't remember. Maybe it was the end of 14, beginning of 15. 
in 30 days, I went from being a board member to being named the interim CFO. In another 30 days, we sold the company to Phil Life. It took us about six months to close that transaction from a regulatory perspective. Uh, and it has been a 10 year journey watching the now chairman and CEO named Dayton Judd put this thing together. But wow, what an amazing ride uh, that Life has bought now. I think four companies. Isotory, we bought a sports neutral brand. We bought a company called Mimi's Rock, diversifying our GNC revenue into a direct consumer model on Amazon. So Mimi's Rock is the largest traditional oil seller on Amazon. And about three, four weeks ago, we announced that we acquired all of the assets of Muscle Farm, which if you've listened to Sports Neutral in the last 10 years, that's probably like the biggest name that never was. And we listed on NASDAQ about a week ago. So, you know, that story that was when we started with it, eight, $9 million revenue company. Um, now it's a $60 million revenue company traded on NASDAQ with a hundred million dollar market cap and it's $22 stock. Uh, wow, congratulations. Uh, it sounds great, Joe. I didn't do a lot except the initial step. The, the rest of all of it was the benefit that I've had of being on the board of an amazing company with an amazing team and maybe one of the best operating investors and chairman and CEOs I've ever worked with in, in date. So, you know, other than being a very proud observer uh, and like a great uncle, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, and you're going to find that's a pretty common theme in the ones that work for me. There's an, another one where we were called in to sell uh, a company in 2011 that was a research products company. So effectively, they sold consumable product to people that were doing fundamental biotech research. That was a one owner company called Boston Biotech. Mm. And we, they were very, very, very specialized and very, very, very good. And they were one of the few people in the world that had a, a set of products that could tell you what happened in a very specific cellular pathway uh, called ubiquitin. And long story short, uh, I knew I was going to sell the company. The guy who owned it, whose name is Francesco Melandri, had about a three and a half to four times top line number that he wanted to get. I didn't know if I was going to get that for him. To a long story short, we ended up getting almost nine and a half times top line for the company. Wow. And again, I, I just got lucky. I, I literally, you know, called the right guy on the right day. And he was the CEO of a $300 million market cap company that he had driven for 30 years. He was getting forced out and he wanted to do one last deal. And I found him on the right day. So, um, he paid probably two and a half to three times what anyone else is willing to pay for the company and just got lucky. So, you know, there's probably a few more. I think, you know, the mistake, the, the, the mistake and failure stories are probably much more robust at telling and, you know, in a higher quantity than the success stories. You know, once again, there's nothing wrong with luck. You know, my dad always said, rather be lucky than smart. You know, combination of the two go, you know, hand in hand, but... You know, there are a lot of people out there that are, are, are in the right place at the right time. So, you know, congrats to you. You you know, whether or not you're on the board or, you know, you made that phone call, you, you, you know, you got 
yourself in that position. But let me ask you, you talked about the failures. What have you learned the most out of the failures? Okay. Because there are a lot of successes, but sometimes the real building blocks, you know, in one's career and personal life are the failures that they endure before those successes come down the road. So can you share with our listeners some of those, you know, failures that have helped, you know, mold you to where you're at today? You know, probably the first learning about the failure is that you just have to trust your gut. Most people I find, unless they're, you know, they have some kind of mental issue, have pretty good instincts. And if something feels wrong or something doesn't feel right repeatedly, if you can't figure it out simply, it's usually because it's either too hard or they're lying. So, you know, I think the first thing that I I kind of found is trust your gut, you know, trust, then verify. Uh, and if, if you do that consistently, or if your gut is telling you that something is wrong and something's wrong and something's wrong and it just doesn't add up, but multiple times, it's usually because it's not going to add up some revelation that occurs. So I think that's probably the, the first thing that I've learned. The second thing that I've learned is that I definitely believe that there are certain personality types that become CEOs of companies. And one of the personality types that I have encountered often is what I kind of call the Lex Luthor type. Usually an egomaniac, usually a narcissist, usually never wrong, usually focused in one direction, usually with a gigantically huge revolutionary idea. I've seen that personality type probably 15 times. And either, and I call it Lex Luthor, either that person is really the smartest person in the room and they're going to achieve what they think they're going to achieve, which is we're going to try and create like a billion dollar company or they're a maniacal criminal and you should run in the other direction. <laughs> so, you know, one poster child for that, I think is, is Elizabeth Holmes, right? So, you know, I've encountered 15 Elizabeth Holmes in my life, two of them made an amazing amount of money and what they did succeeded and they're geniuses and 13 of them uh, are probably sitting next to her in Texas right now. So that's something else that, that I would say. And I guess the, the, the third, you know, major learning that I've had from a failure perspective is that you're going to fail. You can't always be successful. Classic fundamental corporate finance talks about efficient portfolio theory where if you're holding a, a basket of 20 securities, you need that many because five or six of them are probably going to work, give you a return, and the rest of them, of the 15, are just not going to work. Either they're going to you know, revert to the mean or they're not going to, or they're going to underperform. And you probably need to find those five or six efficient things that are going to be the winners. And mm-hmm. You know, I think you have to have resiliency because I find so many people that are in companies that because I'm not invested in them and I'm not passionate about them and I don't have my life involved with them, I can tell this aren't going to work. And I think understanding that I 
think part of the process is that you have to have failure. Not everything can flourish and not allowing that failure to dissuade what you want to do in the future, like accepting it as, as a, as a badge and saying, all right, well, this one didn't work. I need to move on. I couldn't agree more well, with what you've learned, you know, from failures, you know, these three uh, pillars that we've discussed, how has that helped you? I'm sure it has. You have a lot of companies, especially in today's environment that are knocking on your door. You know, what's, what's the, the, the first two, you know, items that you're looking for when somebody comes into your office or gives you a call to, to make that decision on whether or not, you know, you want to pursue it to the next level and, you know, see if you can help the company or engage with them. I think there's probably two things. F- fundamentally, is is there a lane for me to play in? Is there something for me to do where I can say, given what they need and what I know that I can bring to the table, there's a model for me to fit in. There's not a model for me to fit in that it doesn't really work. Like, there's a lot of people who call me and say, can you help me? Well, that's, that's not how it works. Like, I just don't, like, again, I said, I don't have magic beans. I just don't turn something on and the universe gives money to companies. It's not, it's a, it's a holistic process. So if you have money or you don't have a problem or you know everybody in the universe or you're sufficiently capitalized or you're trying to run 8,000 options on your own and you've been successful with that, you don't need me, right? You, you don't, you don't need me. So the first thing is, is there, is there a way for me to fit in? Is there someone in your tent like me already? Is there someone in your tent or around your tent like me? If there is, you don't need me. That's the first thing. And the second thing fundamentally is kind of, do I believe? Do I believe your story? Do I believe your technology? Do I believe your product market fit? Do I believe where you're priced? Do I believe with, do I believe in your vision? What I normally say to people when I work with them is this isn't about what you want to do right now. This is about where do you see this company in three to five years? And if I don't see the company in three to five years, kind of in the same general region that you do, you know what? It isn't going to work, right? I don't want to, I'm not going to change your vision. I don't have that much time. I don't have that much energy. If your vision is that we're going to go to, you know, Jupiter, and my vision is we're going to go to Saturn, probably okay. If your vision is we're get your your vision is we're going to go to Jupiter, and my vision is we're going to go to some other galaxy. It's just not going to work. So I, th- I think the second thing is kind of do I believe? Do I believe in the vision? And you know, based upon the first, is is there space for me? What about the people? You talked earlier about how some of these CEOs that you've met, the people are huge. So the third thing is, do I like you? Do I like I'm going to be working with? Moreover, do I have mind here? I am overwhelmed with opportunities, fortunately. Thank, thank whatever data you believe in. I'll thank the data that I believe in today um, mm-hmm. for that. Overwhelmed with opportunity. The engagements and the situations that work for me are ones that I have mind here in. What do I mean by that? You're not texting me at 1130 on Thursday night asking me what to do. I don't have mind share. And, I, and I'm going to tell you that I have six or seven people 
maybe 60 or 70 people in a month who will call me, text me, email me, write me that I have no client relationship with, that I have no equity relationship with, who will call me because I have their mind shift. And some of them are people that I know I will work with in the future. And some of them are people that I've known for a long time. And some of them are people that, you know, I just want to support. So if I don't, well, I don't have a lot of time. And as a result, if, if there's a personality cue or the personality aspect, or I just don't like the person that I'm going to be working with and the people that are involved, it's just too much. Like I don't have enough time. Um, I, I have, I can't help everybody. So the, the people are, are huge and it's not just do they have the experience and can they get the job done? Can I work with them? Can I deal with whatever stuff they're going to bring to the table? Right. And, and if I can, it's, it's probably a no for me. Mm-hmm. Would you say, you know, cause personalities can be very difficult and a lot of times, you know, investment banking uh, operations can start working with a company, you know, because they see a tremendous opportunity. They don't understand the personalities until later <laughs> after the fact. Would you say that personalities and, you know, cause you're going to have to deal with them. Is that, you know, number one on the list? You know, it's, it, let's say it's up your alley. It's life sciences. You love everything, you know, it's up your alley and this CEO work, you know, walks in and you get a feel, just a vibe that you're not going to be able to work with this guy. You cut bait right there and then? Pretty close, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, it might not be that abrupt, but y- yeah, I'll, pro- I'll probably politely figure out a way not to do it. I won't just get up and leave. Right, but, of course. But yeah, I make a lot of dating analogies when it comes to sales and companies. So... You know, before you're going to get hired by a company or before you're going to engage in a company, you probably have three or four meetings. So let's call it three or four dates. At that point, you probably should know uh, what's going to happen. You, you, you might have had kernel relations by that point, I, I would assume in some instances. So kind of in the same way, if by the second or third date, I don't have the right cadence or I get crazy Ivan, or I get a personality trait, which I just say, I know this is not going to work, then yeah, I'm a very good assassin. But once I've done what I've set out to do, they don't need me anymore. So if I'm really good at what I do, I will work myself out of the job, right? If you hire me to sell your company and I sell your company, you walk away with 25 or $30 million. I might get a fee for it. You're going to give me a pat on the back. You're going to go retire and I have to go find another company to sell. Right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's not often just about the trade for me, which I do think differentiates me from a lot of people that do what I do. It's more about some level of intangible sometimes than just the trade. I'll give you an example of that if you want. Sure. Absolutely. About three years ago, I bumped into a amazing sports nutrition company based in Southern California that's privately held by one guy. It, it's a gold mine. It's an amazing trade sale. I convinced him because I stalked them to hire us to sell the company. <laughs> For a year, we wanted to launch the process. Back to my point, he, he, he hit one of my personality types. 
it didn't feel right every time we asked them for information, it didn't happen. And eventually it got to the point where I don't want, want to say he let us go or we decided to believe, but it was kind of like, All right, well, if you're not going to sell the company, like, what do I need to do to stick around? Why do I need to stick around here? And, you know, that I think was, you know, a bit of an example of, hey, it's just as you know, work and I, I, I can tell now, right? That was probably one where because the opportunity was so large in terms of what we thought we could sell the company for. I probably stuck around much longer than I would have normally, but you know, usually you can just kind of tell. Absolutely, that's a that's a good uh, good story, um, man. We're going to wrap up, but I I, I want to you know just expand a little bit on what you've been talking about and you know over your career. How much of your success would you say? And we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, would you attribute to luck versus timing outside of your expertise it's a great question joe i I think you have to factor weight both of those in in the same bucket and it's probably 2x timing and 1x luck so what do i mean by that i believe that timing is just about everything and you can't you can't quantify, manufacture, or characterize timing. You know it when it happens. You can feel it when it happens. A couple of years ago, you know, in 2020, if you put a dollar in crypto, it's $3 the next day. Okay? That, that was timing. You put a dollar in crypto now, it's three cents. That, that's also timing. So you can you can usually get a sense of timing. If you go to market uh, on a house or on a financing or on a company or on a property and you talk to 30 people, you can probably figure out, given market read, is it a good time or is it a bad time? So timing is important. You can't, you can't really alter timing to your benefit, but you're, but you can benefit from the right timing, right? Mm-hmm. I believe if you understand timing, you can create your own luck, but you have to work at it. How many people are you calling a day on that project? How many conferences are you going to? How big is your network? How many layers into your network have you cut into to know if there's a guy who knows a guy who knows the guy who's the right guy? How deep have you gone? So if you realize that you have a good asset that has the right timing, how many layers of leverage across the totality of your network can you get to be in the right person's office or in the right inbox or on the right phone call on the right day? That's luck. But I think if you get enough reps, is it luck? You can manufacture a higher probability outcome and you can call it luck. The company that I told you about in Boston that we sold. Was it luck that I found the right guy on the right day who wanted to buy the company? Sure. But I also had six other people that wanted to buy the company. And because I went three or four layers down in my network to get through that guy, I happened to land on this desk on the right day. So I, I do definitely think that luck and timing are 90, 70 to 90% of 
higher probabilities of success, assuming all other things are constant. I don't think you can do a lot to probably alter timing. I think you're subject to timing, but I do think that you can alter luck. Well, thanks, Seth. This has been great having you on today's podcast. And I think that our listeners are going to take away a lot of um, good information in the world that you operate in. If our listeners, any listeners out there would like to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach out, learn more about Catan and Associates? And, you know, maybe these are some companies that would like to uh, have further discussions with you. They can hit me up on my email. They can look on my website, kateassociates.com or chefatkateassociates.com. I have hundreds of people who DM me every day on LinkedIn. So you can send me a direct message on LinkedIn as well. Those are two probably pretty good ways to get old. Okay, terrific. Thanks everybody for listening to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. You can learn more about our payment network by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy uh, at cannabisradio.com or you can get the Cannabis Radio app. In addition, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Uh, please join us next week for our next episode of Freedom to Buy. Appreciate your time and have a good afternoon, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>